For Sammy Kennedy Sim, she would never have thought those regular holiday trips to the snow as a little kid would have led her to become a professional winter athlete and on the verge of her third Olympics. The ski cross athlete now travels the globe chasing an endless winter and has been ranked as high as third in the world. Olympics was always the pipe dream, but after suffering a stroke in her early 20s, just months out from the Sochi Games, she was told to give that dream away. She didn't. Instead, she fought incredible battles and overcame enormous challenges to wear the greener gold at those games, then Pyeongchang in 2018, and she'll do it again in Beijing. The frightening incident gave her a fresh perspective on her high adrenaline and action-packed sport, and as a result, she's continually succeeded and reached incredible new heights. And this winter story? Well, it starts in the sunburnt country, with Sammy growing up as your typical sports-loving kid. I played lots of sports as a kid and really um, come from a pretty sporty family. You know, as a kid, I was encouraged to, and my sisters were encouraged to um, try lots of things, whether it was sports, arts, music, drama, but we all had a knack for sports, I guess. And some of those sports obviously was skiing. Um, it was also surf lifesaving, little athletics, touch football, they were, I was sort of like quite a busy kid. And yeah, I just, I just thank my parents for that, I guess. Like sport, we are such a sporting nation in Australia. Mm. And uh, yeah, if we weren't doing something in an afternoon, like there was a problem in my household. <laughs> <laughs> so where did you grow up? And you, and siblings? Tell me about your siblings. Well, we grew up all over the place, actually. Um, my father is a publican. He owns his own um hotel and pub in the New South Wales Snowy Mountains now. But as we were growing up, he worked for a hotel chain in Australia. So we actually moved around quite a lot. So I want to say that I went to about 10 or 11 different schools from kindergarten to year 12 um, due to the nature of his work. Um, My sisters are nine and 10 years older than me. And as you can imagine, I just wanted to be just like them when I was little, (laughs) (laughs) which I'm sure was a pain in the butt to them. Um, so my elder sister, Hillary, uh, she was actually a heptathlete, quite a talented heptathlete through high wow. school. And uh, my middle sister, Navina, was a bit of a jack of all trades. She was doing um, track and field and, and doing sprinting and she was training alongside Yana Pittman and uh, Mel Gainsford-Taylor around the Sydney Olympics. But cool. she got headhunted into track cycling and went and gave that a go, but she never really, I don't think she ever really aspired to be a professional athlete, but she's probably out of the three of us naturally the most gifted <laughs> athletically. You know, she's um, she's a mum of two now and looks like she goes to the gym every week and she hasn't been to the gym <laughs> in a while, so she's just so naturally blessed. Um, so I just sort of spent my childhood um, moving around Australia and chasing them and nipping at their heels all the time. That's really, really cool. So tell me then, obviously sport was a big part of your life, but how did snow come into your life? Where did you grow? You grew up all over the shop. You said your father was snow mountains. Is that when your love of snow started, when you moved to the snow mountains? No. Um, for me, I, like because I'm I'm the youngest of, of two girls or three girls, including me, um, by the time I came along, ski trips, like an annual ski trip down to the snowfields um, to Perisher or Threadbow was was a given for my family, um, whether it was three days, five days, seven days, two weeks, whatever we could get. Um, 
my parents or my dad had a love for the snow from a young age. He would um, go down once every blue moon and and ski tour out to Kuma Hut and spend time with his family. And so he introduced that to my mum when they got together as, as youngsters. And yeah, by the time I came along, it was kind of embedded in us. Like you learnt how to swim, you learnt how to ride a bike, you learnt how to how to ski. <laughs> and my earliest memories are of, you know, snow holidays in Jindabyne, you know, driving up to the mountains, um, watching my sisters go skiing and then subsequently me being pushed around on skis in Parisha Car Park because I was so little. <laughs> um, and I've got all these amazing family photos and things like that that sort of that's that really is like the raw part of it. It was just a family trip. My parents decided that they wanted to share it with us. Um, little did they know then, I'm sure, that all of us would enter competitive ski racing at some stage and for me it would be my career. So when did it start to get competitive for you? Um, well, I guess I, I entered uh, Mount Buller Race Club. Um, I would have been in like 1995 um, so I was really little and we were living in Melbourne at the time. So it was quite accessible to go to Mount Buller from Melbourne. It's only a couple of hours drive. And I entered Mount Buller Race Club because mum and dad put my sisters in. So they had like a mini squad for the really little kids of siblings, basically. So we learned how to navigate the mountain and gain some independence in our skiing, which was pretty cool. But as we moved with dad's job, we moved to New South Wales and that was in 1997 um, I all of a sudden was empowered with the choice of do you want to go do skiing every weekend or, you know, do you want to do something else? And I loved the people um, and the community of the race club that I was in at Buller. So it was only natural that I said, no, nah, I want to go skiing. And it just turned from this hobby, um, it kind of became this like overpowering, <laughs> you know, thing <laughs> in my life. <laughs> pulling me out of school more and more, which for me, um, being a sporty kid, like I was looking for any excuse not to be at school. So the fact that I could leave school on a Friday morning and come back on a Monday, um, you know, with like a couple of extra hours under my belt, I felt like was a pretty good option for me. (laughs) (laughs) I saw the opportunity to travel and network and, um, yeah, I'm so happy that I, that I chose that. So I sort of had to let the other things go and (laughs) my schoolwork did, go downhill a little bit with that too. So I actually ended up moving from Sydney at the time to the New South Wales Snowy Mountains and went to a school that was really supportive and smaller class sizes so that I could get some schoolwork done, that I, I wasn't just relying on on this pipe dream of being a skier. Mm. Um, but the consistency was that that community. Like I mm. really loved the people, the mix of people that were in winter sports. So you were living in Sydney at the time. So you went to boarding school? Is that... Is that correct? I did. So the school, so the school that I was at in Jindabyne is Snow Mountains Grammar School, and they offer boarding and day student um, learning. And my mum got a bit sick when I was about sixteen, and I had to move into the boarding house so that I could keep going to school. And she was getting some treatment in Sydney, so I sort of <laughs> was kind of cool. I think um, for me at that time. I only like think that it's probably cool now that I reflect back on how much freedom I had. Um, you know, I had my driver's license. So I was, yeah, I was probably 16, 17. So I had my driver's license and I'd 
drive from Jindabyne to Threadbow to go training in the morning. I'd get back at lunchtime. I'd have something to eat. I'd do some classes in the afternoon. I'd go to the gym. Then I'd do the study hall with the boarders um, that night and to kind of do that like five days a week. And it's kind of unusual to think about it now, like in a boarding school sense, I can't imagine anyone (laughs) letting their kids do that. But that's a country town living, I guess, that that you don't really get that in the city. I never would have had the freedom to, to try and explore myself as as an athlete but also as a student um like the way that I did in Jindaban um can I ask your mum being sick was it was she okay what happened yep. there um my mum was diagnosed with genetic breast cancer and it's been an ongoing battle for our whole family um mm. but she's very much alive and well and and uh yeah currently in in Jindabyne herself at um at the hotel with my dad and it was definitely a, a tough time being a teenager. I was very close with my mum and felt like I was mm. kept in the dark a little bit. I think about about what was going on. A lot of a lot of her diagnosis and her treatment happened while I was out of the country. So I was so disconnected from my family at that point. Um, and you know, in in hindsight, I've talked about it with my parents as well. Like, you know, never do that to me again. Like, don't not tell yeah. me what's going on. But you only do the best that you can do. And mm. um, now, you know, it's made me open my eyes to health in a big way. Like, you know, we, we're talking about something that I potentially have or that my sisters have or that I might pass on to my potential children. So it sort of, I think, has unified us in a, in a little bit of a way. But it was it was pretty challenging, um, you know, going in and out of boarding school, being a day student and then a boarding student and going and living with friends sometimes, like, I don't think I, and probably until right now, like reflecting on it, I don't realise how turbulent that was. Mm. Yeah, when you said your mum was sick and then being at boarding school, I just, yeah, that would have been really full on and you're a teenager as well. Um, genetic breast cancer, so does that mean you, something you you mentioned it, you have to keep an eye out on? Out yeah, um, I, I won't lie, I've, I've done a pretty poor job actually of, of informing myself mostly because um, throughout my journey for the last eight years in particular, I've had my own health hurdles and it's sort of been something like I'm trying to keep out of sight, out of mind. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm 33 years old now and and I need to kind of face the music and understand that knowledge is power. So like when I get mm. home um, from this Northern Hemisphere campaign in, in late March, early April, like I'm going to have to start entertaining you know the the genetic counselling and and uh, looking into what my future might hold, which is kind of scary. Um, but my sisters have been going through it as well, and um, you know you're not alone. I think through this whole through this whole kind of experience for me, luckily anyway, I've got my family to lean on. Um, mm. But I'm sort of trying not to worry about it until I have to. <laughs> I've got way too many things on my plate at the moment. <laughs> Fair enough. I completely understand understand that. Um, and thanks for opening up about your mum and, and about that situation as well. So did you know from an early age that this is what you wanted to do? Did you see anyone above you and think, I want to be like her, I want to go to the Winter Olympics? Was there a moment like that? I think um, around that time Zali had just won an Olympic medal um, in Nagano in, 19, in 1998. She'd also mm-hmm. been world champion and we had this like plethora of young Australian ski talent coming right behind her, like Jenny Owens and Jeanette Corton, Rowena Bright, and then some boys as well, John O'Brow, Luke Dean, uh, Brad Wall. 
And I got to see those guys when I was at training because they trained alongside us at the Snow Hill. So, Mm. again, it was kind of like, oh, this is actually way more than just a lifestyle. Mm. I mean, it's a bloody good lifestyle. (laughs) But, you know, this is actually potential for for a career. And that was at sort of 16. And at 18, I really was like, oh not in love with this sport. And that was because I was I was doing alpine skiing at that point. So I wasn't doing ski cross yet. Ski cross didn't really exist. So I was racing against the clock all the time and, and I didn't, I loved it. I loved the idea of it, but I didn't love the sport. Um, I didn't love the competitiveness. I could never really get that animal to come out of the, the mm. cage, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just tried to ski cross for fun and all of a sudden I was like, well, hang on a second. I know that I'm in front when I'm in front of three other people. This makes sense to me. Um, <laughs> it doesn't matter if you look the best, if you're the prettiest skier, if you're tall, if you're short. Like it doesn't matter. You just have mm. to be the fastest down the hill. And it became so much simpler for me. And and trying that ski cross for the first time, it prolonged my career. You know, it actually gave me a career because at 18 you, in, in alpine skiing, you don't really have a career yet. Um but it really gave me that that opportunity to pursue this seriously. So that was when when I kind of made that decision to be a proper athlete. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so this is probably a good point to stop and just get you to explain for those who aren't familiar with winter sports. Explain alpine skiing and explain what you do ski cross. Okay. So alpine skiing is the traditional downhill skiing. So um It's comprised of a few disciplines. There's slalom, giant slalom, super G and downhill. And those disciplines play to different strengths. Some people um, are are like more fast twitch muscle fibres and they move quickly through a slalom course. And other people like we've got Greta Small from Australia who's our female alpine skier at the moment. She's really good in super G and downhill. So going fast, like they clock up to 130 kilometres an hour. And they're racing against the clock you know, to be the best when they get down to the bottom ahead of the rest of the field. Mm. It's just them alone, them and the start gate, and it's them in the course. I switched to ski cross um, when I was 19 years old and it's born from alpine skiing, but we race against three other people down a course with bumps and turns and jumps and rollers. So it's kind of like BMX but we're on skis, not on a bike. That's the best way to describe it, especially when Tokyo just happened. We had some great success on on the BMX track. Um, That's the best way to describe it. So we have ski cross and we have border cross, so the snowboarders do it too. And, yeah, it's just like the most action-packed, exciting ski event, I think, at the Winter (laughs) Olympic Games. Um, And the thing that I love the most about it is that Billy Goat Joe from downtown Dubbo who maybe has never been to the snow or, or old mate from um, Kubikidi yes. can turn on the, the TV during the Olympics and the, if the ski cross or the border cross is on, they'll understand what's happening. You don't need to know anything about skiing and snowboarding to know that the person in front is in front, <laughs> that they're winning. <laughs> so it's really easy to follow um, and it creates a great TV show. So for us, we compete on a World Cup tour um, from the end of November through till April each year. Mm-hmm. We have anywhere from 12 to 15 events and they're mm-hmm. televised live across the globe. So it's a perfect 60-minute TV package. So we get quite a lot of airtime over here in the Northern Hemisphere mm-hmm. um, and the Chinese seem to love it <laughs> for some reason, which is good <laughs> for us. Um, yep. And, yeah, it's just it's very exciting and I really look forward to, you know, putting on a good show, I guess, in February. Can you just tell me how challenging is it being a winter athlete in the sunburnt country 
And how did your access to facilities and equipment and everything like that growing up differ to what you have now? Um, I mean, you can choose to see these things like as a blessing or as a curse. Um, today I'll go with a blessing. Um, for me in <laughs> Australia, I'm lucky that I have two winters. So I have three months in our Australian winter where I'm at home in Perisher and I can train um, at the ski hill there. I can do some technical training. I can go in our great train parks. Um, and then my competition season starts, you know, in November. So by September, I'm already overseas, you know, preparing over here. So I kind of get like, the, I see it as like this three month like leg up on mm-hmm. some other people. Um, the downside of that is you don't get a lot of downtime. So I have an, a vitamin D insufficiency because I never see the sun anymore. Um, <laughs> but but I, I have to kind of go from winter to winter and, and it does take a toll. Um, mm. You know, it's a lot of time away from home. Um, you're isolated a lot of the time and, and a lot of the time, no matter how hard they try, your friends and your family, like they just don't get it. Um, and that, that it's unrealistic to get the, to have them to, to understand it. They respect it. Um, that's why they're friends and their family, but, um, they don't often get why, why you're pursuing this and, and why you can't like have a beer on a Sunday afternoon or, or those sort of things. So like the lifestyle balance from being in Australia can be tricky, but I think if you play cards right, you can manage it really well. Now, obviously like now in 2022, the facilities that we have for winter sports in Australia are just getting bigger and better. Um, we've got new centres going down into Jindabyne for the park and pipe crew where they can practice their jumps on a, on an airbag and then take that new trick that they might have learned on the airbag to the snow in the same day. Like that's amazing. Mm. Um, and then we have the aerials facility and mogul facility up in, in Queensland that's been finally finished mm-hmm. um, for them, which is awesome. But for me, for my sport, I kind of need to put myself overseas so that I can get the best training because the only way to practice racing is racing and I have to race against three other people in in any race scenario. So I need to go where the Germans are and the Austrians are and the Swiss and the Canadians and um, thankfully in my sport we have a really tight-knit community and the pool of talent is pretty small at the top end. So um, we work together a lot and Like I train mostly with the Austrian team, which is pretty cool. Um, I kind of make up their fourth girl. So I've always kind of got a training (laughs) opportunity and, and yeah, we kind of have to put ourselves over there. So the downside is it's a pretty transient lifestyle. I mean, I'm sitting here in an Airbnb in Canada right now and like my stuff's all over the room because I can't unpack because there's no cupboards. (laughs) Mm. So like it's, it's not a lifestyle for everyone, Um, but it means that I'm able to, like, you know, if, if a training opportunity comes up, I can put myself in there. Um, whereas maybe if I was based somewhere for the whole winter, I couldn't. Were you underestimated because you were from Australia when you first started to compete internationally? I think we still get underestimated as Australians. <laughs> yeah. and I think that's across our whole team. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I was injured last season at the second World Cup of the season, but at the first one I was on the podium and at that first mm. race, I qualified first by almost a second and, you know, we are a force to be reckoned with and we're certainly not, within our community anyway, we're not considered Mm. um, randoms and we're not just jacket hunters. You know, we're contenders, which is pretty cool to be part of. Um, Mm. But obviously the general public, like, 
they'll see an Australian. We walk around with our Australia jacket on when we're going to the supermarket or something and people are like, what are you doing here? Did you get off the wrong bus kind of thing? Um, but you're going to face that anywhere. Things were going pretty well for you at the end of 2012. You made that switch to ski cross early on when you were 19. In 2012, you were ranked 11th in the world. The Olympics were coming up in just over a year's time. Then in 2013, something happened which you will, quite frankly, never expected to happen. Can you take us back to that day when this happened and explain the context beforehand yeah. of, of, of what was happening in your life and in your career at that time? So it was April 2013 and I just returned home from our Northern Hemisphere um, winter. It was actually like, you know, a year ago in this cycle now. Um, so we were halfway through our Olympic qualifying period and I was having some problems with my knee. So I did what every smart person does and goes to the doctor and decided to um, have some surgery to to kind of propel me into this last part of Olympic qualifying um, without a niggling knee injury. So because mm. of the tight timeline, it was about nine months before the Olympics, I didn't have time to rehab a repair of the cartilage that was damaged, so I actually opted to get them to just take it out, which now as a 33-year-old, I'm like, why did I do that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I need all the cushioning that I can get in my knee. Um, but at the time I made that decision and, and I stood by it. You know, it meant that I wasn't on crutches, I I was going to be back in the gym after four or five days, like really no rehab. Wow. Like it was it was all set to be super smooth sailing. Um, three days after my surgery, I woke up and I was definitely feeling like like my knee surgery had taken a little more toll on my body than, um, than probably I'd originally expected. Um, I'd never had a knee surgery before, so I didn't know what to expect. But I, you know, got told that I'd walk out and I'd feel dandy and I didn't. And... Um, it was six o'clock in the morning and my cat, Sochi, who's named after the Sochi Olympics, <laughs> jumped, of course, right on my freshly operated on knee and I had an immediate knee-jerk reaction and anyone who's had any kind of knee surgery or intervention um, will know that feeling of when you've accidentally moved an injured limb a little too quickly um, and I reefed that knee up into my chest and was like, oh, my God, and then felt so mm. bad and I'd kicked the cat off the bed and felt so bad that I'd done that. So I, I got up and uh, went to grab the cat and <laughs> bring her back to bed and fell on her on the bed on my stomach. And my husband wasn't really sure what was going on. Now, the lights were off. It was pretty dark. And I was kind of trying to like, I remember trying to reach for the light next to my bed, my bedside lamp, mm. and turn it on and, and try and tell Ben that there was something wrong. But I couldn't speak. And I was making a lot of funny noises and I couldn't, I was finding it quite hard to breathe. And at this point I was still on my stomach. So Ben realised pretty quickly, like he thought that I was kind of joking around but realised like the cat was still stuck and I was having a bit of a hard time. He turned on the light and rolled me over and saw that I had a full facial droop. Mm. Um, and obviously I was struggling to breathe and talk and he saved my life. He called the ambulance and said, my wife, who's in her early 20s, is having a stroke. She's got to be having a stroke. And I was so lucky that, A, he was there, um, mm. that, B, we were living about five-minute drive from a hospital. Mm. So the hospital's ambulance station was only two minutes from our house. So within mm. seven minutes of Ben making that phone call, I was back 
in hospital receiving a drug to dissolve the clot that had gone from my leg into my brain. So the time is everything. I mean, mm. I had, I've obviously had a, a full recovery. Um, initially things weren't so smooth sailing, but I've learned so much about stroke. It was something that I only ever associated with like old people or, or unhealthy people, mm. people that were you smoking were your early or drinking. You twenties. Yeah, it's I mean, incredible I was a baby. that he recognised that that was what was happening. What? what I did know. He, how did he do that? With I, I don't 20s, know. It's the last thing you'd expect. I know, and I don't. I really don't know, like what it was that that made him like if he'd experienced. I should probably ask him that. <laughs> Good question <laughs> to ask. Tell us. Um, but he he acted fast, and and he knew that whether he was right or not in that I was having a stroke, he knew that I needed help. Um, and got it straight away. And yeah, I was, I was then put in hospital and told, you know, that, um, to forget my Olympic dreams that I've had a stroke now, like label Mm -hmm. stroke victim, um, forget going to the Olympics. Like I'm not going to be allowed to drive a car. I'm not going to be allowed to do any of these things and to expect the worst. It was, I kind of remember being given a pamphlet, um, like on like stroke and it was all like older people in wheelchairs, like in palliative care. And by this stage, this was probably like day three or day four. And at this point I'd regained a lot of function in my body. I mean, I could walk, like I could take myself Mm. to the bathroom. Um, So by that stage, because I was feeling relatively able, I was still quite puffy and was like a little deficit um, in terms of my strength and things. But And mentally my brain was like scrambled eggs. Um, I was all over the place. Mm. But I was frustrated that I was in this situation because I was like, what do you mean? Like, I'm an athlete. <laughs> and what happened during that time was I actually wrote to the, to the National Stroke Foundation and I said, hey, guys, I'm Sammy. I am about to represent Australia at the Olympics and I found myself in hospital with a stroke and you guys have got nothing in terms of relevant information on your website for me. Mm. Like, what's up? And through that, I've actually become an ambassador for them for their fight stroke program, which is amazing. And um, I've met some incredible people, both younger and older, who have been affected by stroke. And um, it sort of opened up so many avenues for me that I never would have, you know, had. Um, but at that time, it was like, here's, an, here's, a, here's a handout on palliative care. Mm. <laughs> I was like, but I don't need yeah. palliative care. Yeah, so it was, yeah. it was, it was very challenging. Um, but I worked my butt off, so I ended up, we were living in Canberra at the time um, and I was training out of the AIS. My husband was working in a government job in Canberra and he got a job opportunity um, and my coaching staff were based in Sydney. So we decided that we would move to Sydney to give both of us the best chance at a little better, better life. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty intense when we moved to Sydney and um, I was, you know, there's no rule book for how do you return to exercise post a stroke, whereas yeah. if you do your ACL, there's a pretty clear roadmap of getting back to on snow or getting back to play depending on what sport you play um and this was uncharted territory so it was it was a delicate time but I worked my ass off and and I had a lot of support from the people around me whether that was my family but also my coaching staff and I was on snow at the I think it was the 21st of, of August I was on snow in Perisher so and when did you have your stroke I had it on the 8th of April 11th of April wow that's incredible did the doctors at the time, did they give you, like you keep going about time being so important and that you're in the hospital, what was it, within seven minutes? 
which is astounding. Um, do the doctors ever give you an indication how they tell you how severe it was and that if you, I don't know, waited three more minutes or did they give you any of those, what the scenario could have been like? No, not really. But what was interesting about my stroke was that I had this clot <laughs> because I was on the pill <laughs> and I had a bloody right. knee surgery and I wasn't given any blood thinners. So that was the first thing. Um, but the whole, I had this hole in my heart that we didn't know about um, that I was born with and that was how the clot went to my brain, not to my lung. Right. Yeah, and right. um, I, so all of a sudden I had this hole in my heart that like, you know, that I had no idea about. Um, wow. And I was told that I could manage it. I was told that I could manage it with medication or that I could have um, like a surgery. And I was mm. like, yeah, dude, I'm like going to the Olympics in nine months. I'm not going to have a heart surgery. So I managed it with blood thinners and which, you know, is like the most irresponsible thing you can do in a, in extreme sport like ski cross. I mean, the concussion risk in my sport is massive. So if I'd have had a head knock during that period, like mm. it could have been catastrophic. Mm. Um, but, you know, I did the best with the information that I got. Mm-hmm. And you then, didn't know that then? No, I, I think I, I knew but I didn't really grasp the magnitude of that situation. Um, but then in 2018, actually, was it 2018? Yeah, it was 2018. So at the beginning of 2018, so I've now competed for another four years and gone to a second Olympics. Um, my dad had a had a a heart attack, and when my mum was talking to the cardiologist, was like, "By the way, my daughter had this thing, you know, with this stroke and this blood clot, and she's just competed at the Olympics and she's on these drugs." And he was like you need your daughter to, when she gets off the plane, she's coming to see me straight away. So I did. And I had a device put in my heart. So it wasn't a surgery. It was Mm. a procedure where Mm. they put a device in my heart to close this hole. And I haven't had to take any medication since. Wow. So it's been like. (laughs) All those years later. All those years later. um, You know, it's just been like I said, there's no rule book on this. So in terms of like our medical teams and stuff, we've all done the best with the knowledge that we have, but it's not Mm. something that you encounter every day. Um, And like I said, you know, most people are born with this hole in their heart. And as you grow to the the age of about seven, the septums join and, Mm -hmm. you know, you're presented with, you know, different atrium in the heart. And for me, my septums, they, they never joined, they just overlap. So with enough of an adrenaline rush and an increase right. in rapid heart rate, heart rate, and the perfect storm of there being a blood clot, there was an opening. Mm. So, you know, it's like something that you that I probably would have had my whole life, and I would never have known any different. Mm. Um, so it was just such unusual circumstances, and obviously mm. now, like having had my heart um, addressed and having a really good cardiologist on call, um, mm. I feel I feel great. Yeah. <laughs> And like you said, so fortunate and so lucky as well. And and now you, with the magnitude of that, like I'm sure that anyone listening will understand why I'm not that keen to go and like go get genetically tested for the BRCA2 gene just sure, yet. Sure. Um, I'm <laughs> still like <laughs> relishing in the fact that I've overcome all this other stuff. Yeah, 100%. Um, nine months until the Olympics and right from the start you were determined you were still going to be there. What was the recovery like? How... 
at your, I want to say, at your lowest in terms of after it just happened, what did you have to relearn? What did you have to, what did that rehab look like? Um, mostly it was a, it was a big opportunity to kind of like take a step back and have a look at how I was operating as a person and as an athlete. Um, you know, I, I now, as a consequence of, of having that stroke, um, I've had to pay a little more attention to my health and well-being than I probably ever did before. Um, when I was, when I just had my stroke, like I said earlier, my, my brain was like scrambled eggs. Like I was all over the shop, um, crying when someone would say something nice or happy or funny, laughing in an argument. Like which I was so scrambled um, mm. between the years and that was that was really challenging. It was really, really put a lot of strain on my relationship with my husband. It really put mm. a lot of strain on my relationship with myself because mm. I couldn't understand a lot of the time why I was feeling down when some, you know, when I was, when it was all going well or um, it, it was a very interesting time um, for me. And, and all I learned was that I could only focus on those controllable things that I could do every day. And every day was a new opportunity. And whether the goal that day was to um, be able to complete two training sessions as programmed without having to modify something um, or the, the goal was to squat 150 kilos, whatever that, that goal was that day, um, I kind of just had to bite off as much as I could chew and, and notice when I was biting off more than I could chew. And that's been the mm. hardest thing and that hasn't stopped, by the way. You know, I, I'm constantly having to scale back and and mm. understand fatigue a lot differently and um, rebuilding myself and my body, being paralysed one side of my body, um, my strength and things came back really quickly. Like my muscle memory, mm-hmm. is, I mean, this is my job. Like skiing to me is second nature and training is second nature. So it didn't take long for my strength numbers and things to come back but just had that real disassociation that it takes cognitively a lot more to get me me going on that left hand mm. side than on the right, and is that still the case? It's still the case, but it's not nearly as much as it was. Mm. So to put it in perspective, um, you know, when I after my my stroke, um, our uniforms are custom fit to our mm. us that we ski in. Um, they're really tight suits. Mm-hmm. So the circumference of my left leg to my right leg, there was a seven centimeter difference in muscle bulk. Um, so mm. I lost that much muscle. So I, it's almost like when when I was paralyzed and whatever happened, you know, on a cellular level um, in my body, this is just my imagination and my interpretation mm. of it, um, it's like it still has the capacity to be strong and to be um, functional and to be everything that I need it to be. But I'm someone that puts on muscle like by looking at a dumbbell in the gym and it just never mm. quite came back that same way on that side. Now, eight years later, my legs are finally the same size. So they're the same size. The left time, left at times is actually stronger at the moment. Um, but it's it just has taken that long, mm. you know, of, of persisting and, and doing those things. But the best thing about this whole whole experience for me and was that, my my experiences as an athlete from a young age right up until now is that you know we're got, we're task oriented or goal oriented people and mm. um, that's how you get through any kind of rehabilitation. Mm. You have to have a goal. You need to have an endpoint, and those goals can be small daily steps, or they might oversee a larger picture, like going mm. to the Olympic Games. And for me, like 
I just have, and I, even today, you know, I had a conversation with my sports psych about this. Like I just have to keep my bloody eyes on this, this process and mm. it's every day. And uh, mm. I really was able to draw on that in my rehabilitation and I believe that was what got me over the line in the end. Knowing that you had the Olympics in, in nine months. Yeah. It was like I've got a deadline. So how did you get there? And when you got there, how did your mindset change being there to how maybe, you know, if you hadn't have gone through that for the last nine months? Well, I think um, two things happened. The first was I all of a sudden went from um, being there to perform to just kind of being happy to be there. So Mm -hmm. my expectation in terms of the experience changed. Um, Mm -hmm. And the other thing that happened was that I, I, I wavered through whether it was what I wanted to actually do or not. Um, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty normal. Um, <laughs> I still have that sometimes. When you have a life-changing um, event, 100%. Yeah, but yeah, and it makes you go like, is this worth it? Like is the, is the hours, the stress on the body, the travel, like, you know, it's a, it's a, a complicated lifestyle and it's not good for you travelling. You know, we were travelling like sometimes 60 flights a year to mm-hmm. run around all of the country or the world trying to do our sport, you know, and that mm-hmm. takes its toll. Um, so it was, it was an opportunity for me to reflect and, and that I remember making that decision I'd made the decision already before the Olympics that I'd go for another four years. So that kind of took the pressure off um, my first Olympic experience too in terms of the performance outcome because, you know, like nine months before, before I'd had my stroke, I was going to do, you know, like no one ever goes to an Olympics not to win a medal. Like I don't care Mm. what you say. Like you want to be the best on the day. Like you enter any competition with the ambition and objective to be the best that you can be and and for me I know that I could end up on the podium so that changed um mm. and so that meant that I was free to have a more of an experience and then going to 2018 looking for some performance do you remember your first race back what that was like um I was pretty nervous <laughs> <laughs> um, but but like I said earlier you know we train we in order to train ski cross we are training a lot, a lot with our competitors. So I'd already been in that environment quite a bit in the preseason. Um, and even more so, the thing that's the most memorable about the whole thing was that first day on snow in August, like free skiing in Perishar with my coach at the time. Like it, it reaffirmed to me um, something that I have to, I, I have to constantly remind myself all the time because we do get injured all the time in our sport. But my skis are an extension of me and, Mm. like, walking, it's, like, probably the most natural thing for me to be doing is is to be skiing. So Mm. I'm I'm completely in control in that moment when I'm on snow, whether I'm free skiing or when I'm on a ski cross course, it doesn't matter. But it was such a freeing experience for me having had all of those issues, you know, trying to do steps onto a box and make sure that my weight was evenly distributed and, and all those mm. rehabilitation struggles that I'd had trying mm. to level the playing field of leg, leg to leg, when I got on snow, none of it mattered because I was doing something that was second nature. And for me, like I, ha- I was injured last year in, in December and getting back on snow um, this Australian winter just gone was the same. It was like, oh, my God, that's right. This is why I do this. It's, it's me. It's part of me. This is for life. This isn't just for sport. This is life. Um, and, yeah, so it was, I learned a lot through that. And um, I had a few races before that, that 28, uh, sorry, 2014 Olympics um, with actually my best ever result, the, Olymp- the uh, 
last event before the Olympics, I, ha- I came fourth at a World <laughs> Cup and all of a sudden was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Hang on, I was happy to be a participant here and now I'm like getting calls from the media about being like a medal contender and I was like, whoa, yeah. I'm just really happy to be here. Um, so it was a lot um, yeah. but it was a really exciting time and like I said, I'd, I'd already committed to myself that I'd go for another four years so I mm. didn't have this overhanging cloud of expectation that it's my last hurrah kind of thing. Yeah. Um, How, where did you finish that of, Olympics? I, oh, my God, I was last in that Olympics. That's what the best story about this story is. <laughs> so I did all that stuff and then I came I came last. I crashed in my qualifying run and then um, in the heats was taken out by a German girl in, like, the third turn and that was it. Like, all that stress, <laughs> all that rehab, all that stuff, and it was over like that. Yeah, and, but you uh, got there. That's well, no yeah, mean so, to get there. Like I said, you choose, you choose to... You know, there's always things that you want to improve on and there's always going to be, I'm sure even if I won a gold medal this year, I'll tell you that there's something I could have done better. Um, yeah. But in those moments you choose to be, to take what you can from the situation and um, that definitely propelled me into into the 2018 games, um, which led me mm. in with a much different mindset. Um, yeah, it was, it was all over pretty quickly in Sochi. <laughs> um, but 2017 moving forward, and you, you mentioned 2018 because it's leading up to the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics, ranked top 10 in the world for the first time. You got your first World Cup podium as well. There was this huge success, this wave of success that was coming your way. What do you put it down to? What was what was motivating you through that time? Um, well, I think, I don't know that there's anything that ever different that motivates you. I mean, like I said, at any event, you want to show up and do the absolute best that you can. Um, but for me, I've, I know I just feel like that year in 2017, I was in a pretty good place. Like um, my at, at 2014, we had quite a big team um, and it was quite a complicated team and three of the athletes retired and all of a sudden it was just my teammate Anton and I and um, smaller numbers mean simpler. So things, whilst things got more challenging for us in terms of like accessibility to funding and and reassurance that we'd still live another day kind of thing each year Mm. (laughs) as athletes. Um, The way that we operated as a program simplified because of the smaller numbers and and I felt really good. I felt felt like I had great trust with my coaching staff. Um, Mm. We never really got any medical support but that was okay because I, Mm. you know, we were able to rely on the Austrians. They'd always look after us or something or the Canadians and I just felt like I was in a really good place. And um, just before that event, um, actually in in, uh, in, ja- in January, the event was in February where I had my first podium, um, my grandfather had passed away in Australia and my parents had said, don't fly home, you know, just stay where you are, keep doing what you're doing, it's really important. And my mum flew over to see me um, just after the funeral and I went to a World Cup and she was there and, the World Cup was like the worst World Cup ever. I mean, the, it rained, all of the rain in Europe. <laughs> the race got cancelled. Like it was terrible. But I got this really special time with my mum and I mm. I spent two or three days away from the team and came back refreshed, like re-energised, feeling really, you know, sad that I'd missed out on this opportunity to grieve with my family but really empowered by the choice and, and knowing mm. that my grandfather would be on board with me. Um, mm. and that my mum had come and be, because she needed to be with me. You know, that was that meant a lot to me that she that she felt like she just needed to see me. And back then it was pre-COVID so you could just jump on a plane. Um, 
And now I look back and I go, well, I I went into that race and I just was so happy to be there and Mm. felt so, so safe and secure in what I was trying to achieve. I gave myself the freedom to actually reach my, something close to my potential. Mm. Um, And that, that's something that I keep searching for every weekend. And I'm constantly reminded Mm. that you don't find it every weekend, but um, those times that you do, whether it's for one heat or whether it's for a whole day, it's completely worth it. Got to your second Olympics, eighth in Pyeongchang, amazing result. Um, there's someone else that was along for your ride. You know, you talk about being, um, I mean, it's a smaller team, the Olympic team, but one person who you're quite close with is Belle Brockoff um, and she's a fellow board cross um writer as well what's it like that friendship how did that develop and what's it like to have that kind of friendship that that you and and Belle have have had over the years well it's funny um Belle and I have known each other for quite a while because she trained alongside us she'd come up to Sydney from Melbourne to train with us in the gym in the pre-season like April May June kind of thing and she's she's a bit younger than me so I was always kind of like yeah whatever like young person. <laughs> um, and at that point I was in a team that was quite big. So we didn't, it wasn't that I didn't have space for anyone, but we we all kind of stuck to our own guns, so so to speak. Mm. In 2017, Belle was rehabbing a pretty gnarly knee injury and we pulled resources. Um, so in a pre-season training camp, September, October, we were in Susfay, Switzerland, and um, we were sharing a physio and it was just her and I. My teammate Anton was out with a knee injury and the rest of her team were still doing summer training back in Australia. So she was trying to make up for lost time and get some time on snow. And we became super close to that period because I never really had anyone to hang out with outside of training um, and especially another female. And Belle was rehabbing and needed someone that would, you know, not ask her just how her knee's going all the time and not focus on the injury, focus on the person. So we spent a lot of time... Um, you know, during that camp where we'd get off snow and, you know, like go to the local deli and buy whatever cheese they had and like, you know, <laughs> sit in the sun and after we'd done our training and just kind of enjoy where we were and, and take a step mm. back. And um, what what developed over that month, month and a half really leading into that 2018 games was this friendship that I feel like I've had forever. I love that. Well, I am um, in touch with Belle. And talked about you. And she sent through this memo. Hey, Sammy, I just want to let you know that I think you're an incredible person and a very inspiring athlete. I remember hopping on a program when I was 19 and then watching you go go through a really hard time with your stroke and you demonstrated what hard work and persistence was and, and true strength, um, not only physically but just mentally and you went on to compete at the 2014 Olympic Games. And I know you know all that, but, you know, for me, like when I saw that, um, it really stuck with me throughout my career. And when I went to um, the 2017 World Champs and had my first knee injury, I looked back at what you did with your stroke and, you know, how you came back and showed that it is possible to come back from injuries, um, setbacks, um, and still have a, you know, a, a quite successful career, you know, getting podiums and World Cups and racing now um, so many years on. And I 
drew a lot of inspiration from that. So I kept that in mind when I was doing my rehab and, and coming back on snow. Another thing that I remember really well is when we had our, you know, we really kicked off our friendship in Sasfay, um when I was coming back with my first knee injury and I never expected such a meaningful, close relationship to ever come out of that. Um, I still remember having our Nutella and cheese catch-ups, which were fucking great and we should get around that more. But, yeah, I never expected such an incredible friend to come out of that and it's something that I'll forever be... Um, appreciative of and I hope that and I know that we will grow old and have saggy tits that will tuck in our socks and still give each other shit but at the end of the day I know that you'll always be there for me and what I tell people is that you're incredibly loyal kind-hearted friend that will always be there for me even if you are going through hard times so thank you and I appreciate our friendship that's so nice It's a podcast, but there's a lot of tears, aren't there? Oh, I mean, it's just one of those things, like the magnitude of and the weight of of what we go through as as Aussie athletes. Um, you know, we spend, especially winter sports, we spend so much time away, and meaningful connection and meaningful relationships are the only thing that really can kind of get you through. And um, yeah, I feel very proud to have that message. Do you have any idea, you talk about the comeback and what it what it meant for you, but did you understand that your comeback from a stroke and being able to then compete at two Olympics and now you're about to go to your third Olympics, I mean, that effect that it has on your teammates and on the public and, you know, people that are going through a hard time. Is that something that you allow yourself to think about or um, realise? <laughs> probably not. Maybe I should more. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean... I think one of the things that, that I kind of have learnt through through my journey and it doesn't matter whether it's stroke-related or just the general, you know, trials and tribulations of chasing your dreams, whether that's, like I said earlier, arts, music, drama, sport, whatever it is, is um, for me I I do this not only for myself but for the 10-year-old for the kid that I was and... Mm. Um, that's the only reason, like, why I keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not easy. Mm. It's not easy on your family or on your relationships. Mm. But to have a positive influence over someone, um, whether that's a world champion like Belle or whether that's a kid that can't decide whether they want to get out of bed in the morning, like, that's why I show up every day. Mm. And when I don't want to every day, <laughs> I'd be lying if I said that I want to do it every day. Mm. But it's it kind of validates what you're doing and, like, sometimes it can feel really hard to to chase these dreams because it can feel really selfish mm. because, you know, you're not curing cancer, you're not solving the world's problems, you're not creating a COVID vaccine, you're not doing all of these things. Um, but sometimes having people remind you that, you know, your actions have massive consequences and those consequences, should you choose it, can be really positive, kind of validates it and makes it all worthwhile. Making a difference, Sammy. You definitely are. Beijing. Not far oh, away now, can you believe? 
What? But you had to go through COVID as well. You know, you've talked about the sacrifices that you've had to make for your sport. You've talked about the time away from family and and relationships, you know, you and Ben and find it really interesting that we're both Sam, Sammy's and both have husbands, Ben, too. (laughs) That's so random. (laughs) Side fact. Um, You know, just the sacrifices that you've had to make and then you throw in COVID. What did that mean for you, that challenge? Um, Did you have to come back home? Did you have access to equipment? What did it mean for your preparation? Did it set you back? Well, I think the first part of your question is... um, probably a big reason why I think I've gotten through or I'm getting through because it's definitely not over. Um, As an athlete, I don't believe that we sacrifice anything. I believe that we make a choice and I choose this life and I choose to chase these aspirations. Um, And with that choice, you become quite empowered because it's your choice and the people that you surround yourself with enable you to make those choices. They don't challenge those choices. Um, So I take issue a little bit with the word sacrifice. Um, Mm -hmm. That's a personal thing. No. The reason why I say that is because um, for me, if we go through that first year of COVID, um, that 2020 year, um, fortunately, unfortunately, my knee was giving me problems and I decided to come back to Australia um, in February mm-hmm. uh, and miss out on the last two World Cups of my World Cup season in Europe. So I got back to Sydney and that next week we had athletes that were returning from overseas and were being told that they now had to self-isolate at home um, and then all of a sudden this hotel quarantine thing came into play, you know, um, you know, in the next couple of months. And I, I first went into that COVID lockdown period extremely motivated. Like I said earlier, I'm very task oriented. As long as I'm busy, I'm kind of happy. As long as my, as long as my cup doesn't spill over in terms of load, um, I'm happy to kind of keep charging through. Um, I was sponsored by a gym that unfortunately is a COVID casualty. Um, they haven't been able to reopen after COVID. Um, but that's Joe's base camp in Brookvale. And Joe and his team gave me they basically were like, whatever equipment you need to do your training, like take it. So I basically had a full gym set up in my backyard in Manly. I had a rowing machine. I had a bike. I had barbells. I had squat racks. I had plates. I had everything. So I kind of went in, like just grabbed the bull by the horns and just went hammer and tongs. Um, (laughs) That obviously is not sustainable. And I succumbed to the COVID burnout, the lulls, the ups and downs, the extreme lows, the extreme highs, extreme motivation, like an any day was a, like you had no idea what, what mm. was going to happen on any one of those days. And it wasn't until things started to, to kind of relax um, at the end of May. Um, at the end of May there in 2020, Ben and I went um, as soon as the restrictions lifted. My family have a house um, down on the south coast. So we went down there. We didn't go anywhere. We just went there to change, have a change of scenery. Um, and it a- enabled me to actually make plans for what the winter would look like. So I knew that, okay, at the end of June, I'm going to go and I'm either going to be allowed to ski on a ski resort or at least I can go backcountry skiing and just be connected to the snow. Like any time that I'm connected with the snow will make all of this training worth it and it will remind me 
of what I want to do and why mm. I'm doing this. And so yeah. I did that. I moved straight down to Jindabyne in June and and put myself there. And fortunately, we didn't get locked out of the season at all in Perisha. We had a full season that year. Um, I had the best training I think I've ever had purely because I had a different mindset about it. I was just any moment that I was training on snow or free skiing or ski touring with my husband or cross-country skiing or whatever we were doing was a bonus because, again, it was that leg up on my competitors who had been taken off snow in March and hadn't been on snow again. So I kind of went into that 2020 season feeling like I had this massive advantage that the things that we had to go through as Australian winter sport athletes to leave the country last year was crazy. I mean, you know, normally you might do a risk assessment of a situation before you were doing something risky, but we didn't have to do risk assessment. We had to just do risk understanding. It was understanding that there would be a risk that we would contract COVID and need to be ventilated in a hospital. And we went through every single risk and every athlete had to do it and every staff had to do it. And uh, then we had to apply for the exemption to leave. And then, then you had the guilt that you were able to leave and someone else couldn't. And you had to make the decisions on whether you'd share that your journey on social media in fear of someone being upset because they can't go and see their family overseas. Like there was all this whole new dimension of stress around that. Um, so when we came into that World Cup season last year, which is, again, the beginning of the Olympic qualifying period, I had no idea how I was going to go because I'd had limited training with my competitors because of COVID. Mm. You know, someone might get, like in the German team, someone might get COVID so then the whole German team doesn't come to training that day or whatever. Um, so we went to that first World Cup and I really didn't know what to expect. Mm. And I did awesome. <laughs> I did so well. You know, I skied so well. I was mentally in such a great spot. Um, I had some struggles because of because all of a sudden I did so well that then I couldn't sleep because I was so excited that I did so well. It was all these sort of things happened and um, and then all of a sudden it was over because I dislocated my elbow. <laughs> yeah. So all of a sudden I had a season-ending injury after like the greatest day ever and it was mm. just, it was a lot. Mm. So within within six days of winning a a, a a medal on the World Cup, I was in hotel quarantine, unable to open a drink bottle for myself. And it was like all of a sudden, like being back in in May or, or in April, this highs and lows, it was like mm. this total wave again. Um, and I, even though I'd done the, the risk acceptance on that that might be a possibility, um, it was a reality that I really didn't consider. You've now qualified for Beijing. And we're just a couple of weeks away. How are you feeling? How how are you looking heading into this? I'm I'm feeling nervous. I think um, because everything with COVID is changing again. Um, I don't think that it's going to get cancelled. I'm not nervous about that. But the whole world I'm watching right now, watching the world kind of not relax their restrictions, but um, change the way that we're we're dealing with COVID. You know, the isolation has gone from 14 days to 10 to 7 to 5, depending on what country you're in and those sort of things. And now we're all vaccinated. It's completely different. It's crazy to think that last year we were travelling not not vaccinated. Um, but for us, our organisation and the Beijing Olympic Committee have made everything harder. So for us, if we test positive two weeks before a competition, that's it. You're not allowed to go, mm. even if you tested negative. So 
all of a sudden everyone else in the world here, like I'm in Canmore, Alberta, it's a beautiful part of the world. People are out skiing. People are going to, to out for dinner to a restaurant and I'm staying in my apartment because I'm too afraid to go and do anything that might compromise the reason why I'm here. And, you, again, I've kind of gone back to that like May, April 2020 vibe of like, oh, my God, like, you, okay, we have to go to the supermarket then you're going to get the hell out of there. Um, it's the consequences for us as athletes trying to go to Beijing are quite high. They're, they're going to really cramp down on, on COVID for us there. And uh, we learned a lot from Tokyo, um, but it's a big part because what's crazy about it is it's costing so much energy talking about it. It has nothing to do with our performance mm. as athletes. Mm. So it's just like coming to terms, I think, with with that with that scope and that landscape around COVID. Um, that's the biggest thing. And this and the sooner myself and 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 my my teammates, the Aussie team. We're, we've all been dealing with this a lot already. So once we all remember that and realise that it's we can we can do all the things that we can and we can control the things that we can control, um, we are going to have that leg up on that competition because of all those things we went through in 2020, just to get overseas and compete. So I'm I'm excited. I mean, today they unla- unveiled the um, formal wear for the Olympic team and it looks so looks beautiful. <laughs> Sportscraft and volley, it looks amazing. I mean, I I really, you know, until that team's announced, I'm not officially on the team, but I really can't wait to wear that uniform. You know, it's it's so proud putting on that jacket for the first time. And um, you know, the mogul team in those photos look so beautiful and and uh yeah, I, I can't wait to be part of that that Olympic team. I can't wait for you to be a part of it as well. Um well we finish off every podcast by asking our guests what message they would send to their younger self. So if you could go back and speak to that teenage Sammy Kennedy, soon to be Sammy Kennedy Sim, what would you tell her? I would tell her that you're on the right path and that the beautiful thing about sport is the communities that it, that it houses and if you don't find friends at school, you'll find them somewhere else. Um, you know, like-minded people do like-minded things. And I really struggled when I was a teenager with the, you know, sport friends and school friends and things and and found it very difficult, especially as a teenager, um, being bullied at school. And I want to tell her that not to listen to them because it's all going to be worth it. It has been worth it. Sammy, I've loved this chat. I can't wait to see you there in Beijing. But thank you so much for sharing your story with On Her Game. Thanks for having me, Sam. It's been really such a pleasure. On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer, Lindsay Green, audio producer, Nikki Sitch, executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. This episode was created in partnership with Puma, the fearless podcast series. To stay up to date with their incredible female sporting icons, Follow at PumaAU on Instagram. And remember, stay fearless.